0: This podcast contains references to suicide, violence, and sexual violence against children. Listener discretion is advised. It's mid to late April 1917. We don't know the exact day and date. And Margaret Taylor, a well dressed middle aged woman with short dark hair, is walking along Victoria Street in North Melbourne. She's with her adult daughter, Elizabeth Downs, who lives in nearby Lothian Street. Life hasn't been easy for Margaret, and it's been even tougher just recently. Three people she's been close to have died in quick succession. Her husband, their eight-year-old son, and her ex-husband, who was Elizabeth's father. Margaret's had her difficulties, but you might not know it from her manner, bearing, and dress. She carries herself well, even if, at times, she's lived on the margins. Or, as one paper will put it, she's fond of tent life. Now... Here on bustling Victoria Street in North Melbourne, Margaret meets a man in uniform who takes her fancy. He's in his 40s, stands 5'8 or 5'9, with dark hair receding at the temples that lends a touch of gravitas to his lean face with its high cheekbones. What's really striking about this soldier, though, are his light blue eyes. This is Private Arthur Oldring, newly transferred from South Australia, now training as a machine gunner up at the Seymour Camp an hour north of Melbourne. Margaret Taylor likes him very much indeed, and she thinks her youngest daughter Rosie will also. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the third and final instalment in the Forgotten Australia episode, The Nature of the Scorpion. After enlisting under his new name, George Blunderfield did three months of military training at the Big Mitcham Army Camp in South Australia. There were 4,000 men there at any one time, so it would have been easy for a fugitive to feel lost in the crowd. George learnt the art of field patrol, the ways of bayonet fighting and how to throw a bomb. He got the inoculations and vaccinations and medical and dental examinations that he needed to serve overseas. In April 1917, he was transferred to Seymour Camp in Victoria. He was now on the other side of the country from where he was most wanted. At Seymour, George trained as a machine gunner. Lieutenant David S. Jenkins, officer commanding the 34th Machine Gun Company, was impressed by Private Arthur Aldring, saying he was a keen, intelligent and conscientious soldier. Two nights a week, George was allowed leave locally, and on weekends, he could get a pass to go to Melbourne. There, he visited his sister Jessie. Jessie was 45, a year younger than George. And she lived in Port Melbourne with her hairdresser husband, Jacob Brown, and their children. There's no doubt that she knew what her brother had done and that he was on the run. But against Jessie's better judgment, she welcomed George into her home rather than turn him away or turn him in. George told her that by going to fight, he'd make amends for his past. On his weekend leaves in Melbourne, George also saw friends and went to hotels. And on that April day, he went to North Melbourne where he met Margaret Taylor. Margaret was born Margaret Ann Walker in 1869 and grew up in Inglewood, which is a little town about 30 miles northwest of Bendigo. By the time she was 16, she'd had a baby out of wedlock. Two years later, in May 1888, at Dunnelly, a little town 23 miles south of Inglewood, Margaret married a miner named James Taylor. He was the son of a respectable local family. James probably didn't have too much choice about getting married because his new bride was about seven months pregnant. In July 1888, Margaret gave birth to daughter Elizabeth, and over the next decade, the couple would have another six children, including daughter Violet, in 1892. By the time Margaret Taylor was 28, she had seven children. Then she met and fell for a fossica named Thomas Storey. The Age newspaper would call him, quote, a small, insignificant-looking creature, while the Bendigo Independent said he was, quote, little bigger than a dwarf. In what were surely scandalous circumstances, Margaret left her husband. She and her new lover Thomas then had a daughter, Rosie, in 1904, and they got married that year. Margaret and Thomas lived in Inglewood. The Bendigo Independent would describe her as, quote, a woman of rather fine appearance but unsettled habits. In December 1905, Margaret was fined one pound and more than twice that in costs after she was convicted of assaulting her sister during a particularly bitter fight. Margaret and Thomas had a son named Cyril in 1908 and around two years later, they reportedly packed up and left for Sea Lake, a town 100 miles north of Inglewood in the Mallee. Margaret was later reported to have deserted her younger children by James to make this move. 1916 proved a bad year for Margaret. Thomas died, as did young Cyril. James, her first husband, also passed away after an illness. Given all this turmoil, it had seemed that Margaret was looking for a new start when she and Rosie moved to Melbourne in April 1917. They stayed with Elizabeth and Violet, Margaret's adult daughters, Rosie's stepsisters in North Melbourne. Two weeks after arriving, Margaret was walking along Victoria Street when she met Private Arthur Aldring. She fell hard and the feeling seemed to be mutual. He would come to visit her at Elizabeth's house every second weekend. Elizabeth thought Arthur was a very reserved and sensible man, though he seemed sometimes to be under the influence of drink. That her mother was keen on this new bloke was in no doubt. She repeatedly asked him to desert the army and to marry her. That was understandable. Margaret didn't want her man going to war where she might lose him. Over the next few months, Margaret and Rosie also went up to Seymour to visit Arthur. But in late August, there was a meningitis outbreak at the camp and he and his fellow troops were transferred to Bendigo Military Training Camp. This was Margaret's old neck of the woods, so she and Rosie moved to Inglewood and from the 10th of September, they lived in a small one-room hut adjoining the place where one of her brothers lived. Arthur Aldring came to stay as often as he could. Then, about two weeks later, he, Margaret and Rosie rented a double room in a coffee palace for a few days. They told the proprietor that they were Mr. and Mrs. Arthur Stanhope, and this was so as to not raise eyebrows about them sharing a bed. Next, Margaret rented a small tenement in the Bendigo suburb of White Hills. She sent Rosie to the local state school, trying and failing to have her registered under the surname of Stokes. On the 6th of October 1917, Arthur, Margaret and Rosie went to see a Bendigo photographer named Frank Wilkinson. Mr Wilkinson took their portraits, including one of Arthur in his uniform, standing in front of one of those dramatic landscape backgrounds so often seen in diggers' photographs from this time. When Arthur and the machine gun section went back to the Seymour camp in mid-October, Margaret and Rosie moved there the very same day. She rented a place under the Stanhope name and said her husband was a soldier in the camp. When Arthur came to spend the weekend, he was introduced to the landlord as Arthur Stanhope. Margaret and Rosie then moved to new lodgings, telling this new landlord, Mr. Joseph Simmons, that she was Mrs. Arthur Osborne. When Arthur came to stay on Saturday the 27th of October, he was introduced to Mr. Simmons under this name. That weekend, Arthur, Margaret and Rosie went for a picnic at Trawool, a tiny scenic town on the Goulburn River about nine miles southeast of Seymour. The next weekend, Cup weekend, they were off to Melbourne. Mr. Simmons asked if they'd call in to see his children who were living in South Yarra with a man named Percy Desmond. Margaret and Arthur agreed and they called in to see them that Saturday afternoon. When they did so, they introduced themselves under the name of Osborne, but then also called themselves Story. Percy thought that Arthur and Margaret acted like a young couple, they were so affectionate with one another. But Arthur was noticeably cold towards Rosie. They also seemed to be loaded with Arthur inadvertently flashing a roll of cash but what was strangest was that he made curious inquiries about whether there were any places on the Yarra where trees hung over the water and if there were any rocky beaches and cliffs at Brighton, Sandringham and Mornington. Arthur, Margaret and Rosie returned to Seymour after the Melbourne Cup. The next weekend, Saturday the 10th of November, Margaret told Mr. Simmons that she and Rosie were going to visit her sister, Mrs. Jensen, at Kerrisdale. Margaret and Rosie were well dressed and they took all their luggage with them in a horse-drawn cab operated in the Seymour area by a man named Samuel Cummins. To this driver, Margaret said she was meeting her sister at the Trouble Bridge. When they got there, she asked to be dropped on the Trouble side. Mr. Cummins did so and helped them with their luggage, only for the woman to change her mind and asked to be dropped at the Seymour side. So Mr. Cummins dropped them there. She said farewell and gave him a ten-shilling note. Margaret's clothing included a distinctive gossamer veil. She and her daughter had a brown tin trunk, a tin hatbox, dress basket and another parcel. But witnesses who used the bridge soon after didn't see Margaret, Rosie or their luggage. They hadn't been picked up by a sister from Kerrisdale because there was no such person. Later that day, an indigenous labourer named William Terrick was going for a gig ride with two Shearer mates. They got to Trawal Bridge around twenty past six and saw a soldier in uniform running after them, beckoning them to stop. The men pulled up and the soldier asked if they had any beer to sell. William Terrick gave him a bottle, refusing payment. The two men chatted, the soldier saying he was training at Seymour and was camping by the river for the weekend. During the conversation, William saw a woman on the bank near where the soldier had first come running after them. Having chatted for a while, William Terrick and this soldier said their goodbyes and shook hands. All up, the conversation had lasted 20 minutes and William Terrick would say he'd know this man anywhere. The following day, Sunday the 11th of November, a woman at the bridge saw a woman and a girl by the river. It looked like they were camping out. One week later, Sunday the 18th of November, at 10.30 in the morning, four soldiers from Seymour camp were walking across the Trowall Bridge when they saw what looked like a bundle of clothes caught in some snags on the river. Closer to the spot, they were horrified to see it was a dead girl. One of the soldiers climbed to the end of a sapling hanging over the water and brought the badly decomposed body to the riverbank. The soldiers summoned the Seymour police. Attending Constable Gibson saw that the girl had been murdered. It was clear she'd suffered terrible head injuries that had caved in part of her skull. Later that day, the deputy coroner performed a post-mortem to confirm there was no water in the lungs. The girl had been dead before she'd entered the river. There were also indications she'd been sexually interfered with prior to death, but it wasn't possible to say this with absolute certainty. Now that murder had been confirmed, Melbourne's CIB was alerted. Detectives Elijah Napthine and Patrick Sullivan left at once by motor car. When they got to Seymour, they established that no girl had been reported missing in the town or in the surrounding districts recently. Thing was, she could have floated to where she'd been found because there'd recently been big floods, though the waters were now subsiding. The girl hadn't been wearing shoes, but otherwise she was well-dressed and well-nourished, and this seemed to indicate that she wasn't a runaway. By night, the detectives had learned an unknown woman with a girl had been in town recently and had taken lodgings at a boarding house. The owner of this place had contacted police, but couldn't identify the girl positively. All of this was reported in The Age and the Argus the next morning and in newspapers all over Australia. Detective Napthine and Constable Gibson searched the riverbanks. On a tea tree overhanging the water, they found a pair of straps from a dress basket. It seemed they'd been thrown from the bridge and had gotten caught. On a nearby sandbank, the police also found a tomahawk. That, they strongly suspected, was the murder weapon. Horse cab driver Samuel Cummins told about picking up the woman and the girl and taking them to the bridge. He remembered them well because they looked so alike he assumed they were mother and daughter. Also memorable was the strange request they be dropped with their luggage on the travel side only to change their mind and be dropped at the Seymour side. In Melbourne, Margaret's daughter Violet Taylor feared the worst. She'd gotten a letter from her mother saying that she and Rosie were in Seymour and that she'd write again soon, but no subsequent correspondence had arrived. Violet Taylor went to the CIB and they whisked her to Seymour. There she identified the body of her half-sister Rosie. Violet told the detectives that her mother had been keeping company with a soldier from the Seymour camp. It appeared that Violet and Elizabeth hadn't known Arthur's surname but by then police had established Margaret had been identifying herself as the wife of soldier Arthur Osborne. On Monday afternoon, Detective Napthine went to the Seymour camp commandant who ordered this soldier be found. But there was no one on base enlisted under that name. So the commandant ordered that a mass parade be held at 4pm. When it was, it was found that gunner Arthur Aldring was missing and that he'd been missing also from the midday parade. A review of his records showed that he'd been granted weekend leave at 11am on Saturday the 10th of November and had next been present for the Monday morning parade. He'd also had leave this past weekend, though he'd been back this morning when his unit received instructions for tomorrow's embarkation for the front. Private Arthur Aldring hadn't been seen since. Was this simply a case of a man deserting because he'd lost his nerve? Or was it something worse? Where was Margaret Taylor? Police told the newspapers they most urgently wanted to make contact with her because they felt she could clear up the mystery of her daughter's death. In reality, they knew there was little chance of finding Margaret alive. On Tuesday the 20th, police and members of the light horse started scouring the river and surrounding area. At around 2pm the next day, two soldiers from Seymour camp were working about a quarter of a mile below the bridge when they found a woman's body caught on another snag. She had been revealed by the still-falling floodwaters. Just like her daughter Rosie, Margaret Taylor's head had been battered in. Detectives found just over 150 pounds in her pockets, along with a couple of small gold nuggets and three watches. £150 in 1917 was a small fortune. Adjusted for inflation, it's about $15,000. That this money and these valuables hadn't been taken from the dead woman seemed to rule out robbery as a motive for the double murder. Dragging operations brought Margaret and Rosie's belongings up from the bottom of the river. There was a round tin hatbox that contained hats, glasses and a card-bearing Violet's North Melbourne address. Pulled up from about 12 feet of water was a thin military mattress made of hessian. Its covering had been weighted with 30 pounds of river clay to sink it to the bottom. Inside the covering were stuffed army blankets, one of Rosie's dresses, her missing shoes, a woman's coat and a hat and a gossamer veil like the one that Margaret had last been seen wearing. Margaret's umbrella was also pulled from the water. It had been deliberately snapped so it wouldn't catch a current open and float to the surface. All of this clearly indicated that the killer had been cold and calculating in covering up the crime. Tests on water currents revealed that Margaret and Rosie had been killed at different points along the river. Detectives theorised Margaret had been killed first... Then Rosie had been attacked, possibly when she was laying on the mattress with her shoes off. Injuries to her body also suggested she'd tried to escape through a barbed wire fence before the murderer had bashed in her head. Whoever was responsible appeared to have told Margaret to lay a false trail with her fictitious story about going to visit her sister. That they had luggage with them indicated they believed they were going on a journey. Detective Napthine used a grappling hook to pull up more items from near where Rosie was found. This included the small brown trunk. Inside, amid the child's clothing and her toiletries, were two photos. One was of Rosie when she'd been younger, it had been ripped in half. The other photo was of a soldier in uniform. This picture was streaked and partly destroyed, but Margaret's daughters, Violet and Elizabeth, had no doubt it was of the man that their mother and stepsister had spent so much time with these past six months. In the corner of the photo was the name and address of that Bendigo photographer, and on the back of the picture was the name A.G. Oldring. Detectives found the photographer and used his negative to print photos that were circulated to police stations and to the newspapers. They also gave the newspapers the portraits that had been taken that day of Margaret and Rosie. Police appealed to this Arthur Aldring to turn himself in and clear his name. With the information given to police by the Aboriginal shearer, William Terrick, it did seem clear that Arthur Aldring had been at the bridge when Margaret and Rosie had last been seen. There was no doubt he was the prime suspect. But it was also puzzling that he should hurt this woman and girl other witnesses had said he was very fond of. Arthur Aldring had been at the Seymour camp for the parade that Monday morning. But where was he now? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? A fruiter named Edward Woolley came forward on the Thursday that week to say that on Monday around 1pm he'd been at his stall near the camp when he'd been approached by a soldier. This man had been acting oddly. After he'd had a soft drink he'd asked to see a newspaper. Mr Woolley had given him a copy of that day's The Age which carried news of the discovery of the dead girl's body. The soldier had been deeply interested in an article in that day's paper, running his forefinger over the lines and becoming very agitated as he read. He dropped the newspaper, asked for a box of matches, and was then shaking so badly that he couldn't light his pipe. After that, he left the stall, went into a nearby paddock, and was last seen walking towards a reservoir. Detectives searched the area, including dragging the reservoir, but didn't find any trace of Arthur Aldring. Next, police heard from a woman named Frances McLean. She was a housekeeper at O'Connor's Railway Hotel at Mangalore, 12 miles north of Seymour. Mrs McLean told detectives that on Tuesday the 20th at 3.30 in the afternoon, a man had come into the hotel and had a couple of beers. He'd been wearing civilian clothes, but she'd noticed his military boots. He'd explained that he'd been given his ticket of leave because he had minor's disease. That was because he'd been in Western Australia back in the day and taken part in the big Coolgardie gold rush. The man said he'd enlisted in South Australia, come to Seymour and was now heading up to Echuca in New South Wales where, as a good patriotic fellow, he was going to enlist again. The man asked Mrs McLean if she'd heard about the murder. She said she had. He asked for the daily papers but Mrs McLean didn't have them. The man had then produced a newspaper cutting about the tragedy and showed Mrs. McLean saying he hoped they caught the killer soon. When Mrs. McLean suggested the dead girl was a circus runaway, the man had said, no, that wasn't true. He said he'd seen soldiers near where the body was found. And as such, he couldn't understand why the Seymour camp hadn't been, as he put it, court-martialed. The man claimed it was too late now. The murderer would already be at Broadmeadows and would soon escape Victoria on a steamer. From what Mrs. McLean told them, the detectives issued a more detailed description of Arthur Aldring, including He had an ugly mouth and very light, blue, noticeable eyes. The man was bald from temples to the crown, he had a slight roll when walking, spoke with something of a nasal twang, and was a heavy smoker. Arthur had been wearing a black coat and trousers with a grey military flannel shirt and green grey soft hat. He was carrying a bluish grey blanket as a bundle. Mrs. McLean had her encounter with the man on Tuesday, and it was now Friday. Arthur Aldring had a three-day head start. It was only 75 miles from Mangalore to Achuka on the other side of the border. If he'd put his mind to it, Arthur Aldring could have walked there by now. But detectives learned that Arthur, after leaving the hotel, had taken the train to Talamba, some 35 miles north. Police there were put on alert and the next morning, Saturday, the Melbourne CIB detectives got a train to Talamba from Seymour. Getting off the train, they found that no one in the town had a car, so they ordered one from Shepparton. It should have arrived in 30 minutes, but it ended up taking nearly two hours. While they waited, they got a phone call. It was the Senior Constable Coote phoning from Tatura Station, some 10 miles northwest of Talamba. He said that a man answering Arthur Aldring's description had been seen that morning at Burnside, 5 miles northwest of Tatura. When the car arrived for the Melbourne CIB detectives, they sped for Tatchera, but they had to take a long detour around floodwaters. By the time they arrived, Senior Constable Coote and his offsider Constable Parker had already left in their car going to Burnside. At Merrigam, the Thatcherer constables learned that this man, who fit Arthur Aldring's description, had gone to work at an orchard at Lancaster. They phoned the farmer, James Small, and he confirmed that yes, he'd hired a new man on Wednesday. So the constables drove out there. About an hour later, the Melbourne CIB detectives got the same information and they too raced to the farm at Lancaster. George Blunderfield, a.k.a. George Farrow, a.k.a. Arthur Aldring, a.k.a. Arthur Osborne, had arrived at the Lancaster Orchard owned by James Small on the afternoon of Wednesday the 21st of November. There, he said his name was Arthur Breakspeare. Mr. Small hired him to pick fruit and to do odd jobs, but it was apparent by the very next day that this new man had no idea about farm work. Mr. Small didn't intend to keep him on long. Mrs. Small, meanwhile, thought the new man was pretty odd, Mr. Small saw this for himself on Friday when he came up the road in his cart to where Arthur was working. As Mr. Small approached, Arthur ran and hid behind a tree. Mr. Small asked him what he was doing. Arthur replied, quote, I did not know who was coming. Arthur George had plenty of reason to be paranoid. This was confirmed in a letter that he'd written to his sister Jessie in Port Melbourne the night before. In this letter, he said at first he'd intended to get across the border, but now he'd thought better of that and was laying low. Quote, I saw in yesterday's paper that they are after me. For what, I do not know, as I am about as wise of what they want me for as you are. The facts of the matter with that woman was that I knew her, as many others did down there, and saw her last on the Friday night before she left on Saturday for a trawool. And up to date, no one has said that they saw me out there, as I was not out there at all that day or any other day. George had spent much of the past six months with Margaret and Rosie, but he didn't appear to mourn them at all. He only felt sorry for himself. Quote, I can tell you, Jessie, that it has cut me to the quick to be accused of being the last seen with this woman at Seymour, and as far as doing them any injury, I would not for the world, as I have run a straight race ever since I came here, and oh, it hurts me to think that just on the eve of my leaving this should occur.' I am very worried over this, and I am the most unlucky boy in the world. But my conscience is clear, and some other man who went away with this woman has done this, and I am blamed for it. They may probably bring in a verdict against me if that woman should be injured at all. If so, I will not move from here unless I am forced to do so. It would seem from this letter that George wasn't aware that Margaret's body had been found the previous afternoon. The fact that he said, quote, Up to date no one has said that they saw me out there before claiming i was not out there at all that day or any other day might suggest that he remembered seeing william terrick and hoped that the aboriginal man wasn't going to come forward as for him not being out there any other day well that was patently untrue because he margaret and rosie had been to the bridge for a picnic which was something he'd soon try to use in his defense On the afternoon of Saturday the 24th of November, two weeks after Margaret and Rosie had gone to Trowall Bridge, Tatura constables Cook and Parker approached Mr. Small's property at Burnside in their police car. Smartly, they stopped half a mile from his gate and went on foot, entering the orchard from a side that was shielded from the huts where workers were having their lunch. They went into Mr. Small's house and through a window saw Arthur Aldring out on the lawn pushing a mower. The constables got within a few yards before he noticed them too late arthur tried to run the constables grabbed him slapped on the handcuffs and marched him to their car then they drove him to tatura taking a different route that meant they missed the melbourne C.I.B. detectives who arrived at mr small's orchard five minutes after their colleagues left with the captive so the melbourne men who'd had a hell of a runaround day, turned around once more and raced back to Tatura Station. They actually got there first and were on hand to see a shaky Arthur Aldring taken from the car and into the police station. Inside, Detective Sullivan asked him, Is not your name George Farrow Blunderfield? did you not receive 12 years for criminal assault on a girl in Western Australia and nine years for attempted murder? And while serving the last sentence, did you not break out of Rottenest jail? Arthur Aldering said, no. But then, according to detectives, he said almost immediately, quote, that is right. I am Blunderfield. I am the man who got away from Western Australia sometime afterwards. How the Melbourne CIB detectives had made the jump from Arthur Aldring to George Blunderfield isn't known. Chances are they'd been tipped off by a Blunderfield family member, and my guess is that it was his sister Jessie. The Melbourne detectives took George to Seymour on the train. Word of the arrest was out, and crowds gathered at every stopping station along the way. Seymour Police Station was also mobbed. Inside, George, under the Arthur Aldring name, was charged with the murder of Margaret and Rose Taylor at Traul on or about the 11th of November. He was placed in the lockup and reportedly slept soundly that night. On Sunday, George was taken to Melbourne on the train. When they got to Spencer Street, crowds recognised the detectives, put two and two together as to who they had in their custody and followed them out of the station. At the CIB, the accused made a statement, signing it G. F. Blunderfield, and he was remanded for a week. Later that afternoon, at her house in Port Melbourne, Jessie Brown, born Jessie Blunderfield, sat down to write a letter. She addressed it to, My dear husband, and began by asking him to change his will to ensure their children were looked after. Then, quote, I blame myself for allowing that monster to come here, and now you have to suffer for it. Oh, I made a great mistake letting him come down on Sundays. I do hope they won't blame you for it. Jessie continued. You know, dear, that you or I know nothing about this murder, but it looks suspicious. And now, goodbye from your loving wife, Jess. Jessie Brown then locked herself in her room and swallowed carbolic acid, which is a deadly corrosive poison. Jesse and Jacob's 13-year-old son was worried that his mother wouldn't come out of her room, so he ran to fetch his father. On arriving at the house, Jacob got into the room and asked Jesse what she'd done. She said nothing, but he could smell carbolic acid and he called an ambulance. Jesse was rushed to Melbourne Hospital, but she died the following evening. On Thursday, the 14th of December, 1917, George was back in Seymour for the inquest, which was held over two days and heard from 34 witnesses. They included the cab driver, landlords, the fruitier, the hoteliers, and, most damningly, William Terrick, who positively identified the accused as having been on the bridge on the Saturday before Margaret and Rosie had been killed. George Blunderfield represented himself at this hearing questioning witnesses, trying to suggest that William was wrong about the date and had actually seen him with Margaret and Rosie when they had earlier gone to trouble Bridge for that picnic. William Terrick, however, was definite about the date. The Melbourne CIB detectives testified last, with Detective Napthine saying that the accused had admitted to being George Blunderfield and had made a statement at Melbourne CIB. George objected to this statement being read, his objection overruled by the coroner. Detective Napthine read the statement which included this quote, I have known Mrs. Taylor and the girl Rosie for about seven months. I first met the mother in Victoria Street North Melbourne with her daughter Mrs. Down. I have kept company with Mrs. Taylor up to the time of her death. While I was in Bendigo and Seymour camps she came to stay at each place and I was regularly with her. Her daughter Rosie always accompanied her. While at Seymour, I hired a buggy and drove Mrs. Taylor and Rosie to the Trowell Bridge and camped there for one night. She was continually asking me to desert the forces and get married, but I told her I would remain in the army. On the following night, Friday, when I again visited her, she said she was leaving the house on Saturday and would take all her luggage to the Trowell Bridge on that day. George's statement had continued, On the Friday night, my head felt very bad and I was despondent. At half past nine o'clock, I returned to the camp. I remembered nothing after that until I found myself lying in my bunk at the camp on Monday morning at about six o'clock. George had gone on. I had my uniform on and felt very ill. My head was dazed and I could not remember where I had been since Friday, but I felt as though something dreadful had happened. I was shivering all over and could not recall anything which I had done. George had said he'd been in a daze for the next week and was unable to remember anything about what had happened that weekend. But whenever he'd been near Trowell Bridge, quote, I felt a frightened feeling come over me. On the morning of Monday the 19th of November, he got a copy of the Argus when it arrived at the camp at 8.30. Quote, I read of the finding of the dead body of the little girl in the river near the Trowell Bridge. I felt it was the little girl Rosie Taylor and I tried to think and think if I had anything to do with the tragedy but could not recall anything. Now George gave his explanation for why his head was in such a state, Quote, "At 11 years of age I went to South Africa with my parents. We lived there for 3 years and while I was there contracted enteric fever and I feel the effects of it in my head. In 1894 I went to West Australia." While in West Australia, I met with two accidents to my head. Ever since then, I have suffered from pains in the head and loss of memory, and I become eccentric at times, lasting for a fortnight or more. This has been noticed by many people, and I often feel afraid I will do something wrong. These accidents have been the cause of my past troubles, and if I have killed Mrs. Taylor and her daughter, it has been these accidents that have caused it. As we heard in the previous instalment, this was the same excuse he'd used when charged with the Hopetown double-attempted murder in 1909, though George had now added in the detail of enteric fever. At the inquest, George Blunderfield was found guilty and committed to stand trial for the double murders. Hearing he'd used the same old excuse, the Sunday Times over in Perth mocked his eccentricity, an eccentricity. It said that it had seen him commit rape and attempted murder, but been calculating enough to escape from rottenist and avoid the police so he could become eccentric again and commit this latest outrage. George Blunderfield faced the double murder charges in Melbourne's criminal court on Tuesday the 19th of February, 1918. He pleaded not guilty. The Crown's theory was that Margaret may have known his real identity and his history. She'd wanted him to desert the army and to marry her. George didn't want to do that. Margaret had threatened him with exposure, so he'd granted her wish and said to meet at Tribal Bridge. Because he was deserting, she'd have to tell anyone who asked a cover story, which they were used to anyway, having invented names so they could cohabit various lodgings as man and wife. Meeting her at the bridge, he'd killed her and killed Rosie too. The Crown didn't make this point because it wasn't able to introduce previous cases against George, but he'd twice gone to prison on court testimony given by children. He wasn't going to let that happen again. With the bodies under floodwaters and the luggage sunk, no one would miss Margaret and Rosie, and in a week's time, he'd be embarking for the Western Front. The same Crown witnesses gave the same testimony they had at the inquest. For the defense, a Dr. T. Murphy said he'd examined George and couldn't find any evidence of insanity. But the accused story, that he sometimes couldn't remember periods from his life, including committing acts of violence, and that when he came back to himself, he trembled, led this doctor to think it was possible he suffered some form of epilepsy. For the Crown, a Dr. O'Brien, the government's medical officer, said the accused was now of sound mind and had been when the crimes were committed. He said there was no evidence that George was epileptic, and further, he doubted that an epileptic would have gone to the lengths he had to conceal the crimes. Another medico, Dr. Beattie Smith, who'd previously been medical superintendent of the Hospitals for the Insane, said that he thought George was sane and that he was lying about these memory lapses. Speaking in what were described as weak tones, George told the jury that Margaret had followed him around the camps, that she'd wanted him to desert so they could get married, but he was determined to go to the front because he thought he'd come back, quote, under circumstances which would cause the authorities to forget his history in Western Australia. George said he'd last seen Margaret and Rosie on Friday the 9th of November. He'd given Margaret all his available money, totalling about £15. He again claimed that the shearer who'd seen him at the bridge the next day was mixing up his dates. On the 10th of November, George claimed he'd been in Melbourne with other soldiers. That weekend, he'd also visited his sister Jessie. The problem with this was that the accused couldn't produce any of the men he'd supposedly been with in Melbourne, and his sister was dead. According to Seymour Camp Records, George had been issued with a pass to go to Melbourne that weekend, but he hadn't used it. George had returned to camp on the Monday morning. On Sunday, the 18th of November, when Rosie's body was discovered, news had swept the Seymour camp. Other soldiers knew that he'd been knocking around with Margaret and Rosie, and they urged him to leave because he'd surely be under suspicion. George said that foolishly he had done so, collecting clothes that he'd already had hidden in the bush because, as a fugitive, he'd never known when he might have had to run. George told the court his father had committed suicide, even though the inquest verdict had been accidental death. He said he had one sister in an asylum. And most gallingly, as some sort of evidence of hereditary mental illness, he told the court he had a sister who'd committed suicide. This was particularly callous given that she'd clearly taken her life because of him and his crimes. It had seemed George wasn't aware how his brother had fared after landing at Gallipoli on the 25th of April, 1915. After about 10 weeks of that hellscape, according to his military records found at the National Archives of Australia, Stephen Blunderfield was evacuated with what was called, quote, unsound mind and, quote, nervous debility. Within a month, he'd be in England being treated for this shell shock. Had George known this, he almost certainly would have raised it as further proof that he wasn't responsible for whatever he'd done, not that he was actually admitting to doing anything. Summing up, his defence counsel, a Mr Brennan said that George Blunderfield maintained that he was innocent. But should the jury find otherwise, he asked that they see the only way it was possible he could have carried out such an act was if he was in the grip of a fit of insanity. What else could it be? No motive had been established. Again, not that it was raised in court because the prosecution didn't actually have to prove a motive, but it was feasible that George, given his previous conviction for child rape, had been sexually interested in Rosie and discovering this, Margaret had threatened him with arrest and he'd killed her and Rosie to cover his tracks. Another possibility was that he just had these murderous impulses. Remembering back to the Hopetown robbery, It had been supposed that he'd planned the murder of Mr and Mrs Efford and their children so he could steal the money in the safe. But given he'd left £150 and other valuables on Margaret's body, it's possible that, at Hopetown, all he'd wanted to do was commit murder and mayhem. The Chief Justice, Sir John Madden, presiding over what would be his last case before retirement, summed up by saying that much of the case was circumstantial. It hinged to a large extent on whether the jury believed William Terrick when he said he'd seen the accused at the Trowell Bridge. As for the lack of motive referred to by the defence, the judge reminded the jury that motive wasn't needed to return a verdict of guilty. On Friday, the 22nd of February, 1918, the jury retired. A little over two hours later, they were back. The verdict? Guilty on both charges of murder. Sir John Madden passed the sentence of death. George Blunderfield accepted the verdict quietly and was led away. For the death sentence to be carried out, it would have to be upheld by the State Cabinet. In April, as this deliberation approached, there was some public opposition to hanging George Blunderfield. The Reverend Dr Charles Strong, President of the Criminology Society, wrote to the Argus saying it seemed likely that the convicted man was suffering some sort of mental disorder. If there was reasonable doubt, Dr. Strong argued he should be spared. His sentence commuted to life imprisonment. Other letter writers made similar arguments, adding that capital punishment was barbaric and didn't act as any sort of deterrent. The cabinet was unmoved and the chief secretary announced that George Blunderfield's sentence was to be carried out at Melbourne jail at 10am on Monday the 15th of April. According to newspaper reports, George slept well on the Sunday night and he had a good breakfast the next morning. In what was described by the Argus as a long conference with a Baptist chaplain, George Blunderfield that morning confessed to having murdered Margaret first and then Rosie. He claimed he'd done it on the Monday rather than the Sunday. George swore to God he hadn't sexually assaulted the girl. Told the minister he'd had no reason for the murders, just that a sudden impulse had come over him. In other words, it was just in his nature. Just before 10 a.m. on Monday, the 15th of April, George Blunderfield walked firmly to the drop, trembling a little as the masked executioner adjusted the rope. Asked if he had anything to say, he requested that his effects, including a letter, be given to his sister, Henrietta over in Western Australia. This letter, which wasn't for publication, was vetted by the authorities and was found to contain nothing materially relevant to the case. Outside the jail, a crowd had gathered, but the days of tolling a bell and raising a black flag to indicate the man had met his maker had long since passed, so these morbidly curious people were only able to look at the stone walls and imagine the scene inside. At 10am, the bolt was drawn and George Blunderfield dropped into whatever eternity awaited. If there are any silver linings to this story, it's that George's earlier victims appeared to recover and they lived long lives. And the same went for his family members who'd strayed into temptation. Annie, the little girl he'd raped in Kalgoorlie, grew up and had a family of her own while Charles and Ruth Efford would move to Perth and their three children would grow up to also become parents. Of course, we can't know the trauma that these people suffered on account of George Blunderfield. George's brothers and his nephew all survived the war. Brother Stephen, who'd raced bikes on the goldfields and had perhaps aided and abetted his sibling, didn't have a lot of luck. He'd suffered shell shock in Gallipoli and saw out the war in England. Stephen returned to Australia in mid-1918 to his wife Nellie, who he'd married in 1904. They lived at Southern Cross in the Goldfields, but this wasn't far enough away from the Spanish flu, which found Nellie and claimed her in September 1919. By 1924, Stephen had married a woman named Marion Rowell. He resumed work as a train driver, and they lived in Kalgoorlie. Marion passed away in 1935, aged just 42. In August 1939, while visiting Adelaide, Stephen, now in his mid-50s, was knocked down by a car and then hit by another one. He suffered a fractured skull, broken leg, abrasions and damage to one eye. Over the next two and a half years, he'd sue for damages, taking the case against both drivers all the way to the Supreme Court before losing. Stephen did seem remarkably accident prone, whether the result of shell shock or drink or both. In May 1941, he was found in a laneway behind a Kalgoorlie hotel, having fallen and hit his head. In 1946, Stephen was back in court in Kalgoorlie, charging that his adopted son Herbert had assaulted him. While the younger man would be convicted, Stephen in court had to admit he'd once been a heavy drinker, but had quit because he'd joined the Salvation Army. Maybe so, but in July 1948, now living in Perth, Stephen fell over again and again hit his head and was taken to hospital. Two years later, July 1950, he was hit by a car in Perth, suffering concussion and another broken leg. A fortnight later, this old campaigner was being readied for discharge on his crutches when he collapsed and died. Stephen might have had issues with his adopted son, but he was beloved. A notice in the West Australian newspaper said he was, quote, loving uncle of Jess and Ernie, aged 74 years. Goodbye, pal. While George Blunderfield got his start in crime by nicking bikes, this story's true bicycle thieves had a better go of it, seemingly learning from their 1914 mistake. George's brother Charles returned from the war to live in Queensland and became a beloved husband, father and grandfather, dying in 1948 at the age of 59. George's nephew Stephen, married in England after the war ended, brought his bride back to Western Australia where he'd be active in the RSL and in the Swans football club. He passed away in 1968, aged about 77. As far as the records allow, neither man tried highway robbery again. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. I'll be back with a new episode very soon. In the meantime, if you've got a minute, I'd love it if you could leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts because I love hearing what you think and it'll help the show reach more people. If you want more Forgotten Australia right now, you can hear full original bonus episodes by becoming a supporter of this podcast. These episodes aren't available anywhere else. One's about two fascinating murder investigations. Another is about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's fabulous ghost-busting tour Down Under, and there's also a double episode about a scandalous divorce case that ruined the life of one of Australia's top homicide detectives. For more information, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, or just click the link in the show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and the Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening.